You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So I was um, sitting in Miss Hill's sixth grade English class uh, at Concord Christian School back in 2001. It was about 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. The principal comes in and says, Miss Hill, I need to talk with you, which is a little surprising. I was in a small private school, and if principals pulled teachers out of the classroom, uh, something was up, like a wild food fight had broken out in the gymnasium. Um, and uh, that was an adventurous day in our little school of 50 people. Uh, and I had a lucky seat. I was in the back row right beside the window. I was able to hear the very short but significant conversation that would echo the halls of the school for the next two hours and would echo into our nation's history for the last 20 years. That was that Washington, D.C. has been hit. And what would follow in the course of our history is complex and complicated and not what the sermon is about. But an interesting and often overlooked aspect of that terrible and tragic day of 9-11 was that it was done in the name of Allah. It had religious overtones and was an act carried out on behalf of God. And I remember specifically um, in high school, a few years after the attack, we were having a conversation about 9-11 in English class. And a very honest question was asked. What is the difference between 9-11 and the Old Testament? Don't we see the same thing happening in the Bible? We're in this series titled It Is Written on the Scriptures. And one of the things over the last decade or so that I've noticed is that there is quite a bit of misunderstanding, misapplying, and genuine questions about the topics of things like hell, violence, judgment, and war in the Bible. Does God command genocide? Is God responsible for the death of infants, particularly when it appears a command is given to destroy them? Is there such thing as a holy war? And if there is, what are the implications? And what about the thing that we as Christians appear most uncomfortable with, this concept of judgment? This is all why you came to church today, I know. (laughs) Who doesn't love talking about these very light and sentimental topics? Here's what I want to do for the next two weeks. I want us to do a deep dive into these four quadrants, particularly as it relates to how we read and understand the Bible. Violence and war in the Old Testament this week judgment and hell next week. Now, these are obviously heavy topics. Um, And if you have been around this church for any significant period of time, you know that this is not my cup of tea. I do not spend a lot of time on this topic because I do not find it compelling necessarily uh, to an outside world. I don't think shame And judgment is what compels people to live full lives. And yet, Jesus talks a lot about judgment. In fact, it is one of the things he talks most about. Um, We, I think, have misinterpreted and misapplied uh, and potentially um, caricatured ideas of judgment onto the scripture. But the idea is the topic and the reality of judgment is there. So what do we do with it? And it is important, I think, to remark before I start that there have been millions, and I I mean millions, of pounds of ink spilled on these topics. So this is not exhaustive. It is meant to be helpful and it is meant to be pastoral. 
because it is important to read all of the Bible. I think we are much more likely to skip over the parts that are wildly um, jarring than we are parts that are wildly boring because we do not know how to interpret this, this sort of scarring pieces of the Bible that we read. And so instead of actually leaning in and digging into it, we hide um, and we are just a step away from our faith being completely demolished if we refuse to read problematic passages in the Bible. So we're going to come back to this verse, but I want to read a passage of Scripture to you that I think is actually really critical to this whole conversation. Um, and it is this. It is actually um, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is the most quoted piece of Scripture in the Bible. If you read the Old Testament and you read the New Testament, that particular passage of Scripture is what Israelites had memorized. Because that is the heart of God. So we're going to come back to that. Um, I want that to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. So I'm going to read uh, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 8. And there are a few passages like this in the scripture. Um, they're not all the same, but contextually they, they do share some similarities. Um, we could spend weeks on this. So I'm going to read a passage. I'm going to use it as a bit of a case study. Uh, and then we're going to go from there. So this is Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 8. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Now, there is a lot going on here. God is making a way for his people to inhabit a piece of land called Canaan. And yet his tactics 
seems somewhat over the top. So as we jump in, I just want you to remember, we are in a unified story. On the first page of the Bible, God creates the world and calls it good. He creates us and calls us very good. We turn from God, seeking in some ways to become our own gods. And that escalates quickly. And instead of following the cultural mandate to spread peace in the flourishing, we end up spreading disaster. And so in Genesis 12, God chooses a man named Abraham and tells him he is going to be a blessing to all nations. And his grandkids will inherit a land that is lived on by the Canaanites. By the way, an important point, that promise that God gave Abraham 500 years before it would happen. And we'll come back to that number. Now, after the exodus from Egypt, Moses passes the baton of leadership off to Joshua. And Joshua's job was to lead the people across the Jordan into Canaan. So this immediately begs the question, who are the Canaanites? The Bible paints a grim picture of the Canaanites. Both Leviticus and Deuteronomy share aspects of the Canaanite culture. It included uh, taboo sexual activity, worship of demonic idols, and the sacrificing of children at the arms of a god where the flame would heat up the hands of this idol and they would place the child in the arms of this idol and watch the infant burn. That is Canaanite culture. Now, of course, not every Canaanite was a mass murderer, but painting with a broad brush, the cultural practices and religious worship were both grotesque and deeply steeped into the fabric of the people. And I fear that one of the significant ways that Western Christianity has hurt itself is that we have let caricatures drive us and form us. So a caricature is a, a, per, a picture or a description or an animation of a person in which certain characteristics are greatly exaggerated to glean some type of effect. Typically a comedic effect, but not always. And so here's how the caricature goes. Canaan is this beautiful land flowing with food and drink, and the little old Canaanites are minding their own business, doing normal things, and an angry, impatient, bloodthirsty God with this massive, overpowering army comes in to destroy these innocent and indigenous people, all because he's flying off the handle and wants a piece of property. That is the caricature. But when we read the scriptures, we see that what happens is almost entirely the opposite of the caricature. So I'm going to take an aspect of each of those and show you why it might not be what it appears. The first caricature is a weak and strong paradigm. So a mainstay feature of holy war, which are just wars done in the name of God or the gods, is that the aggressors use God to justify picking fights that they know they can win. So it's the middle schooler walking to the kindergartner and taking his lunch, right? It's the NBA player dunking on Ben Walls out here on the playground. That is what the weak and strong paradigm is. It is the majority world superpower dominating the third world country. That is what holy war consists of most of the time. So let's remember for a minute then who is Israel? Well, for 400 years, they got absolutely obliterated by being slaves to a nation called Egypt. Egypt was an empire. Israel did Egypt's bidding. Israel had no power. Egypt was a powerhouse. 
And only by God's miraculous intervention through ten plagues that hit Egypt, Israel is freed from being enslaved. But where do they go from being enslaved? They go from wandering, or they go from being enslaved to wandering in the desert for 40 years, eating strange food, following a tower of fire by night, a cloud by day, and having no real militia to be accounted for. Canaan has places like Jericho, fortified walls, military outposts. They've got what we now call forts. They've got chariots and horses and spears and weapons. Nukes were not invented at this time, but what they had were military weapon equivalents. And they had people and they had resources. They are what we call the strong. Israel is what we call the weak. And what does Israel sing when it has Empire Egypt on the left and Empire Canaan on the right? It sings Psalm 20. And in that, it says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. There is no false perception of who Israel thinks that she is. She is a weakling. She is the kid getting her lunch money taken day after day. And on top of them being poor among the nations, weak among the empires, resourceless and small in numbers, think about the military tactics of Israel. What brilliant strategy does Israel employ when it goes to the center of Canaan, or the outskirts, I should say, of Canaan, in the walls of Jericho? It takes musical instruments, trumpets, and it walks around the military fort seven times and then blows on the trumpets. That is bad military strategy. (laughs) Typically recipe for disaster. But this is where we were reminded God is the one fighting on behalf of Israel. Israel is not fighting on behalf of God. And the library of scripture, the Bible is minority literature, meaning the people that encompass this story are not seething with power. They are the ones on the outskirts. And it's not just Israel. Consider a whole host of actors in the Bible. Consider Gideon, okay? He is the least in his family, weakest in his tribe, and his tribe is the last one in Israel. Gideon is way outnumbered against Midian's militia, so much so that in Judges 7, the Midian army is described as could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. And so what happens when Gideon is able to rally 32,000 troops for battle? God says, you have too many. And he, I'm going to take this off. Um, And he, he drills them down to 300. Consider David, a sheep keeper, a boy. Armor weighed him down, so he goes and gets rid of the weapons and finds the stuff of creation. Skippable stones and a slingshot. Goliath, armed giant. David, children's toys. And even the details of the story, Goliath says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistines curse David by his gods. This is what it says. Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beast of the field. So Goliath is boasting of his might. And David says, you come against me with spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. All those who are gathered here will know that it is not 
by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all into your hands. This is not a story of a weak boy defeating a strong man. It's a story of God rising up to defend the weak and give them victory over the tyranny of the strong. That is the story of the entire Bible. Consider who the power players are in the Old Testament. The Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek and Persian and Roman Empires. All those eventually crumble at the subversive, quietly convicted way of Jesus. Consider Jesus. His entrance to the world as a warrior and savior and Messiah and king is through the womb of a mother. The weakest and most vulnerable place you could start. You have little to no agency now, and you had absolutely no agency then. No power, no pomp, no fanfare, no one on your side. A pregnant, unwed mother in that day was surrounded by shame. And that's how God chose to make his grand entrance in the world. He could have come any way, and he chose the weakest way. And consider the early church. The whole movement of the way was based on a resurrected man who gave his spirit to his followers, and it broke out throughout the Roman Empire, where it was downright dangerous to be called a person of the way. And now the infamous scene where Nero would take disciples of Jesus, names that are unknown to us, by the way, and use them as torches to light his castle. It is not the strong defeating the weak. It is God rising up on behalf of the weak to defeat the tyranny of the strong. The second caricature is the armies. If if the first is weak and strong, the second is armies and civilians. Now, there are a few passages in Scripture that that can feel, quite honestly, very unnerving. I will give you one. This is 1 Samuel. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, oxen, sheep, camel, and donkey. That seems drastic off initial reading. But if we fail to understand context, rhetoric, hyperbole, and setting, then we fail to see the whole picture. First, when we see cities or places described in the Bible, we probably have an idea in our head. We think of Market Square or Manhattan or Tokyo. We think of a bustling metropolis with civilians everywhere, but that is not how ancient Near Eastern culture saw cities. Cities were military outposts. They were the Fort Braggs and the Fort Bennings of the world. It was Moody Air Force Base and the Dobbins Air Reserve Base. Civilians did not live in what we think of as cities. They lived in towns and villages. It was cities that protected the people from invasions. So, for example, in Paul Copan's uh, book, Is God a Moral Monster? He says this. All the archaeological evidence indicates that no civilian populations existed at Jericho, I, and other cities mentioned in Joshua. Jericho was a small settlement of probably 100 or fewer soldiers. This is why all of Israel could circle it seven times and then do battle against it on the same day. So when we see something like go strike Amalek or conquer Jericho, we need to hold in our minds the idea of a military base being overtaken, not suburban neighborhoods being bombed. It's more akin to the Great Wall of China being brought down as opposed to a nuke being sent to the middle of Tiananmen Square in Beijing. 
And when we read phrases like kill both man and woman, child and infant, that phrase in Hebrew is actually somewhat misleading. It shows up six times in the Old Testament. But to Hebrew ears, this would not have meant that women and children were present in the military battle, but that it implied the totality of a takeover. Some scholars would say that the phrase depicts destruction of all human life in the fort, which was presumably composed entirely of combatants, not civilians. The one instance that we have where a civilian is named in a military takeover is Rahab, and she is spared. And the reason she was there is because officers like to do more than battle. And the last caricature is it is kind of feeds in this it's exaggerated hyperbole versus reality. So one of the central Holy War passages is Joshua 9 through 12, where over 30 kings show up and rally their military forces to wipe out Israel. So God steps up on behalf of Israel to defend her, and Israel celebrates her victory by saying that Joshua defeated all the kings of Canaan, destroyed all the Canaanites, and captured all the land of Canaan. But of course, if you keep reading the book of Joshua, you would realize there are plenty more kings, a lot more armies, and a bunch more Canaanites who are around for generations to come. So is the Bible lying? Did they defeat them all, or did they not defeat them all? Old Testament scholar and respected theologian Christopher Wright says, We must also recognize that the language of warfare had conventional rhetoric that liked to make absolute and universal claims about total victory and completely wiping out the enemy. Such rhetoric often exceeded the reality on the ground. This is not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood, but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare. It's what we call ancient trash talking. Right? It's full of bravado, but a lot less widespread than you would think. It's like if you were playing a sport and you said we completely demolished them and the score was 100 to 80, not 100 to 0. It is exaggeration for the purposes of proving the point. And we know the Moabites beat Israel in a battle in the 8th century BC and made the outrageous genocidal claim that the nation of Israel had utterly perished forever. Obviously, not the case. Um, and so when we read the Bible that, and when we read the scripture and we hear a nation has been utterly wiped out, destroyed, annihilated, what we are reading is the writers of the Bible are adapting to contextual and cultural rhetoric around the lingo of war. It was not a nuclear explosion. It's a play on words for dramatic effect. Now, I want to take a minute, just a brief aside. The reality is we can nuance our way around the text, but we can't get over the fact that there were still wars and battles and people died. Bloodshed happened. I don't think any of us here would say we want war, idolize war, um, or think that war is part of God's good order. And yet we recognize this side of Eden, violence feels like it has the last word so much of the time. And yet our modern conceptions of war are so much bloodier, more violent, and widespread than Israel could have imagined. Two brief examples. In World War II, that some would call a just war, meaning a war that was fought with grave moral justifications because there was great evil happening in the world, in that war, 
more German civilians died in a three-night-long American bombing of the city of Dresden than American soldiers died in all of World War I. At the time, it was considered the largest slaughter of civilians by military forces at one place at one time since the campaigns of Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan was born in 1227. And the second example is in the last five months of World War II, American bombings killed 900,000 Japanese civilians, not counting the atomic bomb strikes of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That number, 900,000, is more than twice the number of combat deaths the U.S. has suffered in all of its foreign wars combined. Now, why do I give those stats? Because what we see in the scripture a lot of the time is actually exaggerated trash talk. (laughs) But in our day and age, it could be considered highly accurate. We hold this very high standard of war when we read the Bible. And then we cannot get the plank out of our own eye when we look at our world wars today. Comparatively, Israel's wars were a lot less bloody, a lot less violent, and a lot less like a massacre than ours are. And I share those with you because the argument is, yeah, well, but those wars are not religious wars, right? The Old Testament, they are religious wars. And I would just kindly say all wars are religious wars. The gods are different, but they are fighting in the name of what they worship, communism, Communism, capitalism, free markets, blood and soil, the sovereignty state, the expansion of an empire, the autonomy of an individual. All wars are religious. The gods and causes just look different. And of course, there's a lot more to be said, but here's where I I think it kind of meets us. Um, This is a a passage in Genesis 15. It says, uh, as the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. God tells Abraham that the reason his grandkids are going to get beat up in Egypt for four centuries and the reason many of them won't even see the land is this. He is being patient with Canaan. 500 years after the promise that he gave Abraham is when he finally acts. 500 years is twice as old as the United States of America. Our entire history as a nation is half as long as God's patience with an aggressive, violent empire. See, if I were Abraham and I was told the reason that my grandkids were going to suffer is because God was being patient with a violent empire, murdering children, watching them burn at the hands of a God, I would throw a little bit of a fit. I have given my life to follow you. And you repay my family with this. 
500 years is an eternity. 400 years of hearing the crack of Pharaoh's whip. And we read throughout the Psalms and prophets crying out, How long, O Lord? Why are you waiting? And this is a theme that echoes throughout the entire scriptures. And the answer to that question is as surprising as it is sobering. God is more patient than we are. God endures the suffering of his children because he is patient with the evil in this world. The wicked thrive, the faithful suffer, the strong get stronger, the poor get exploited, the weak crumble at the hand of the mighty, corporations pursue profits over people, scandal and corruption overshadow any form of justice. Potentially, there are more enslaved people around the world right now than at any point in human history. So we obviously ask the question, where is God? And here we have such an interesting dilemma because we look at our world and a lot of the time we ask the question, God, when will you act? When will you return? And yet when we read the Bible, we hold a double standard. How could God act like that? How could God do that? Why would God do that? So we wrestle with this contradiction. Do we believe that God is just and long for his justice to rule and reign fully and finally? Or do we kind of wince? And cringe when we read that there is judgment in the Bible. And and maybe now, in similar and different ways than Canaan, God is staying his hand. Because just like Canaan, just like with Canaan, he is more patient than we are. And God's patience will run out. At some point he will return. But we have a wrong caricature of God. If we believe he is on some bloodthirsty warpath to wreak havoc on nations... He is miraculously and incredibly and surprisingly patient. He is not quick-triggered. He is not flying off the handle at a moment's notice. He's actually longing for repentance. He is more interested in healing than he is judging. Remember how God describes himself to the Israelites, merciful and gracious. And remember how the Israelites reminded themselves of who God is, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love. God is not bypassing evil in the world or ignoring injustice or having a passive sentimentality about it. He will by no means clear the guilty. That's what it says. But he is not some evil mastermind wringing his hands at the thought of bringing down the hammer. He is eager to heal the world, to save it, and to redeem it, and to restore it. The way the Israelites describe him is not abounding in rage and vengeance, but abounding in keeping in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, there is a good amount of scholarly works and study dissertations and volumes of books on the violence in the Old Testament. My aim is not to pick apart each and every scenario, but to give you an overview, I think, of a helpful interpretation of some of these passages. But I do want to give two unsatisfactory views that I think are not helpful. And then I want to offer two pastoral cautions. One, I would call this approach the staunchly sort of fundamentalist approach. Um... And it is the no apology approach, right? God can do what he wants, when he wants, however he wants, and is completely justified in doing that. That is an incoherent approach because there are several things that God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot deceive. He cannot be created. He cannot go against himself. 
So to say that God can do anything he wants is one, just a cop-out answer, and it's not satisfactory. And I have been in enough conversations with people where the incoherence of that statement absolutely backfires. It feels both intellectually dishonest and not gracious. It's really important that we seek to actually understand what is going on in the Bible, particularly in its cultural, literary, and historical context, and not merely assume everything at first glance. The other side of that coin is the, if there's a no apology approach, then there is the scriptures are wrong approach. And that is when you read the Old Testament, it is all allegory. This is not historical. It didn't really happen. That's not the God of the Bible. And the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. If we want to be faithful to the scriptures and we want to be diligent and integrous in reading them, this is also an incoherent discussion. We have to be willing to lift up the rocks that we find in the Bible that are potentially covering some hard things to stomach and come to terms with the whole God of the whole Bible, who is way more enthralling than our caricatures are of him. Here is a really interesting part. There are only 12 chapters in the New Testament that don't have some reference, allusion, or quotation to the Old Testament. Twelve. The book of Judges is never quoted in the Old Testament. And it's the book that mostly consists of the Canaanite conquest. So as much consternation as might be struck up when you read about violence in the Old Testament, and as much concern as you have over the particulars and specifics, it would appear that the New Testament writers did not share that. And it's not like they all got in one room together and chatted about which books would be quoted and which ones wouldn't. But over the course of 30 years, 10 plus writers and letters to churches, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there was a whole host of issues that came up. But what did not come up was arguments in churches over particular problematic passages like the ones we've looked at. So here's my caution. I by no means have a corner on the market of biblical interpretation. I take this very seriously, and the weight that I even feel in this very moment is about to crush me. And I'm sure I have been wrong, unintentionally wrong, on interpretive uh, passages. So I want to encourage you, don't take my word on any of this. Do your own research. In fact, do your own research regardless of said topic. Because when you read the stuff in Scripture that seems off or foreign or a little bit jolting, dig. If all your spiritual appetite amounts to is a Sunday sermon every couple weeks, that might be great for my ego, but it will be terrible for your soul. Your faith will die a slow, methodical death. And you will settle for nominal Christianity where intellectual thoughts about God will fall way short of startling new encounters with him. The offer on the table when it comes to the Bible is to discover God for yourself in community with others. Who is this God and why is he calling out to me? The second thing is the thing we miss out on in our relationship to God is our fear of asking serious honest questions about who he is and who he says he is. Wrestle with God. The people that I know that have the most vibrant prayer lives don't have mild ones. 
Meaning they have cultivated such an intimacy with God that the raw corners of who they are get brought out into the open and there is an actual wrestling match with God as if God was the person that he says he is and can be talked to and listened to. And sometimes when you're talking with someone, your emotions come out and what you've been thinking for a while but have been too afraid to say start to surface. I have told the story to a handful of you, so I'll let the rest of you in on the secret that has haunted me for the last six months. Uh, I came across a story back in March, and uh, there was a young man named Nikos Kazanskis who was seeking spiritual guidance from an old monk named Father Markarios. And in his autobiography, he describes a conversation he had with the old monk. Do you still wrestle with the devil, Father? He said, not any longer, my child. I have grown old now, and he has grown old with me. He doesn't have the strength anymore. Oh, so your life must be easy now. Easy, he said. No way, my son. Now I wrestle with God. With God, I said in astonishment. And you hope to win? No, I hope to lose, but my bones remain with me and they continue to resist. I think this is how we approach God majority of the time. We're holding on so tightly to so many things, so many assumptions, thoughts, caricatures, that the the idea of, of who God is is already predetermined in our minds. And he is just inviting us into a Jacobian moment where he just begins to like peel the fingers back one at a time. And we cannot help sometimes but resist him. And he is just saying, why don't you pray like this? Folks, the invitation is not for you to square every ethical question you have about the Bible. I still have most ethical questions unanswered. The Bible is not an answer book. It's actually a living storybook. And the author is inviting you to wrestle with him about your place in the story. And you will come across passages that will throw you for loops. They will upend you. They will surprise you. They will startle you. They will confront you. They will strip you down and skipping over them and bypassing them is a surefire way to miss God. And it is about two steps away from a complete demolition of your faith through one solid college professor rebuttal. And the father is just saying, bring your questions to me. And not only is he saying that, doing that with your ethical issues you find in the Bible, he's saying, do that with your life. There is so much turmoil and frustration in life, so many hard things, so many concerning things. And God is saying, my burden is light and I will give you rest. I may not give you every answer, but I will give you rest. I don't want to be a church of Bible experts, actually. I do want to be a church that wrestles with God over the scriptures. That brings our issues and our pain points to him. And our whole life is one long process of opening our hands up to God and he teaching us the way of surrender through some of the difficult texts of the Bible and some, mostly, of the excruciating pain points of life. So I want to pray.
Would you pray with me? And as the worship team can come up. As we pray, I, I would like for us to pray with open hands. So nothing inherently magical about this, but there is something significant and powerful about opening up your hands. It is this posture of receiving. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us when we cannot square every inch of the story that you have us in. Have mercy on us when we are frustrated and find things in the scripture difficult to comprehend with our minds and frustrating to come to grips with in our heart. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on us and help us live into the story that you are writing that is not about us but involves us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.